Welcome to episode three of the New Balances podcast. I'm your host, Adam, and I'm joined today by um, a gentleman who I had the pleasure of being in the seminary with in Orange, New Jersey. His name is Eric Loster. Eric, welcome. Thank you very much, Adam. I really do appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate you. First couple. I'm sorry? I'm glad that I'm in the first couple episodes. You are in the first couple episodes. You can have your students next year uh, go back and listen to the podcast and tell them that you you know the interwebs. You know how to finagle uh, becoming a guest on an up-and-coming podcast. Uh, And if they're listening, they have an assignment based on this. They'll have to see the rubric when they... Mm. Very, very wise. So I wanted to start... um, to just sort of explain to the people whom you might share this episode with and introduce them uh, to myself and the premise of this. It's not a religious podcast. Uh, It has religious undertones, but it's more um, adapting and overcoming to scenarios. So you and I um, were in seminary at one point. Uh, I was avowed religious. I don't believe you... uh, you didn't take vows with the Salesians, but then you became a novice with another religious order, if I memory yeah. serves me correct. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of the lesser known ones too, I believe. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I think yeah. they call them the Dominicans or something. Yeah, yeah. It's a, re- it's a religious based around dogs. Um, ah. You know, the Dominicanes. Canes is Latin for dogs. So <laughs> no oh. relation to Thomas Aquinas and St. Dominic. But, you know, <laughs> but yeah, no, um, I am as of right now, the would be Pope who became a teacher in theology when I was in second grade, I wanted to be the Pope. So, which to be fair at that point, John Paul II was Pope. So who didn't want to be in that rock star papacy? Oh, uh, he was a rock star. All right. So tell me a little bit about, uh, your background, um, leading up to your vocation story and why you wanted to become Pope or even a priest. And then, uh, yeah, let's start there. Yeah. Um, born and raised in uh, the Detroit area in Michigan. Um, Detroit, the Paris of the Midwest, as F. F. Scott Fitzgerald referred to it. The Paris of the Midwest, I believe he said it. But the arsenal of democracy, a wonderful place where there's not many landmarks to be said, but it's more of an experience. And I will always recommend that people go there at least a couple of times in their lifetime. Um, born and raised in that area, obviously. Um, went to Catholic school all of my life. My grandparents were very formative and um, helping me understand my place in the world and in the cosmos in relation to a divine, omnipotent, all-loving, all-knowing being called God. And from a very young age, I, I had a desire to participate in that in a very special and very particular way. Um, And so that manifested maybe in second grade, I wanted, like I said, I wanted to be Pope. So um, Catholic school all of my life. And so at the end of my high school career, I ended up, uh, high school career is such a silly concept, by the way. I mean, who even sells that idea of a high school career? I believe Catholic schools do. Oh my goodness. Well, yeah, because they charge you 10 to 15 grand a year to send you there. You might as well call it a career. They just try to prepare you for the 25 to 30 that you're going to have to spend for their <laughs> collegiate career. <laughs> That's right. And then you're going to be spending the rest of your life working as a barista, if you're lucky. Or a theology um, teacher. Which is little more than a barista sometimes. Um, but for legal reasons, of course, I have to indicate, wink, wink, that uh, my employers are very generous to me. And they actually are. They're very generous and they provide for me in a very good way. So I think I'm in, a, in the minority. Um, as a side tangent, some friends of mine who live in, in Steubenville, Ohio, they're making 25 grand a year teaching theology. 
But I feel like Steubenville is also, um, cost of living is probably a lot less than where you are or where I am. It is. It is. And, and frankly, the market there is flooded with people capable of teaching theology. And so if you ever want to have a, an instance of economics, you can look at the overwhelming supply of theology teachers and then the very minimal demand. I think they have like two, if that, Catholic high schools in the area. Maybe as I, many Catholic grade schools. I yeah. know here in Boston, there's a lot of uh, positions opened up on the parish level looking for faith formation directors or coordinators. Um, but the salary uh, for those positions is not a salary that is livable within the yeah. area. It's just not tenable. Yeah, let a, not even thinking about the possibility of buying a house anywhere near Boston. Like, not possible. Be renting until Jesus comes back. I mean, that's all. The fun. average uh, price of a house here is between five and six hundred thousand on the low end. Oh my. And that doesn't Austin's get you much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. I mean, that's a whole discussion about how there's the dismal state if you ever want to buy a house anymore. But I hear um, Montana's nice. I'm thinking I definitely am one of those weird guys who both wants to build some kind of a real estate rental empire as well as buy like 100 acres in Wyoming and just not talk. And so I want to do both of those in a kind of mutually exclusive manner, which is really silly of me. But well, I, feel like I mean, it's of... not that far off from where I was. My, I made a passing comment of not liking to be around people all that often. So in like crowded churches or um, in a sports arena, I don't like being, feel like I'm crowded in. And at the time when I was studying to be a priest, a family member said to me, well, you're going to be a priest. You have to love the people. I said, do you ever get to see where the priest gets to sit? He's away from everybody else. <laughs> That's right. There's a specific place cordoned off for him. Nobody else can sit there. And because of a lot of safe, uh, protecting God's children things, he's not allowed to be around a lot of people that much. Anymore. No. So even more, you're protected there. Oh. So getting back to your vocation story, you uh, oh, yeah. went to the Catholic school all your life and I wanted to be Pope. So how did you pursue uh, those ends? Well, I initially started talking to my local diocese, um, at the Archdiocese of Detroit, and was strongly considering visiting them, but out of a sense of obligation of uh, just exploring other options, I decided to um, answer or reach out to this religious order that had a very nice patron, patronal priest, um, the Salesians of Don Bosco and uh, this who himself this was priest. a diocesan priest I heard he was an oratorian no like practically speaking he was really an oratorian I mean he had an oratory and the bishop just sort of left him alone at that point right he was still uh, a secular priest of the diocese yeah. of Turin okay. uh, until he instituted and started the Salesians where there's right. still He's some unclear uh uh, did he take vows or not take vows because he was the one receiving vows. So who was going to receive his vows? I heard there was this nice story about how he made vows to, the blessed, to a statue of the Blessed Mother. Um, how, how canonically binding those are, I don't think a strong argument can be made, but I think you're right. The difficulty of founding a religious order is that who do you make vows to? Um, That's something I think we would have to ask uh, J.D. Flynn and Ed Condon of the Pillar podcast because they're both canon lawyers. Oh, very good. Figure out what's going on with them because they know the history of that kind of issue. But I reached out to the Salesians of Don Bosco and a priest uh, who I believe we both are fairly familiar with, Father Franco Pinto. He's currently Bond director in Tampa. Really? I thought Father the 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 the, the what's this? he's from one of the he's from like the New York area. Father Steve Ryan. Steve Ryan, I thought he was down there. As of yesterday, he just became director of the Archbishop Shaw community in uh, Marrero, Louisiana. He was formerly vice provincial and assigned to the Marian Shrine community in New York. 
real. Oh, he was handling them. Good heavens. But it's all right. Thankfully, I don't know. Thankfully, I had an interaction with both of those. What was it, Father, Father Steve Ryan and uh, Father Franco Pinto, who taught me the one piece of Indian geography that I've kept to this day. I believe it was from Panjim. And ever since then, that has been my go-to um, question whenever interacting with um, Indian priests, which is fairly common nowadays as a 21st century Catholic, of interacting with Indian priests. So you ask, where are you from, Father? Oh, I'm from India. Most people say, oh, well, that's nice. And I always follow up with, oh, is that near Panjim? And then they get surprised because they're making a reference to an actual place in India. And they always appreciate that. And then they promptly attempt to describe to me where they're from. And then I just nod politely because I don't know anything else other than Panjim. Their main export is goat. At least that's what Father said. But I reached out to them, had a wonderful time. Um, but they flew me out for a weekend retreat. But I didn't realize it was a weekend retreat. And I thought it was a four-day retreat. So I ended up staying two extra days, um, much to Father Franco Pinto's surprise. Um, and but luckily, y'all, the the Frank, the Salesians took me in um, for that extra two days and provided me with uh, food and lodgings, and eventually a return trip to the airport. And it was at that point I decided that I wanted to that I felt at that point my malformed or unformed. 18, 17, 18 year old brain thought, you know what, this is what I want to do. Um, I had fun with the with the guys there. I, you were there at that point, I believe you were a, you were a, were you a pre novice yet? What year was that? I think it would have been 09, 2010. Maybe, maybe 08. Because oh, I remember the year that I was there with you, because I ended up further, well, ended up getting accepted to that class of candidates. Was that what it was? Sons of Mary? Yeah, the Sons of Mary were the candidates and pre-novices. Uh, ordinarily, you'd have two years of candidacy, a year of pre-novitiate, a year of novitiate. Unless you mm -hmm. came in with a college degree already, then you would go straight to pre-novitiate. Yes. Mm -hmm. I remember at the time, my spiteful little teenage brain was like, that doesn't make any sense. They should all have to be like me. And then I got a college degree and was like, yeah, no, I'm not going to, no, I should be treated as someone who knows a bit more about life than an 18-year-old kid just fresh out of high school and never had a real job, barely has to shave. Um, but yeah, no, I ended up going and yeah, I think you were a second year candidate uh, because I think the next year that you and I were living together in that massive old convent. Um, you were tiny, tiny father. rooms. Yes, tiny, tiny rooms. My goodness. And you were bored out of your mind, if I remember correctly. Yes. You didn't have anything to do except go on these long trips. Father Dominic. He did try really hard to make it uh, entertaining. I think the most fun that I had uh, had to have been uh, visiting the other communities and seeing what they were doing because I was at least oh, yeah. in having an, uh, a look at the works of the province and what these mm. other communities were doing whereas we were learning Salesian history and mm. a little bit of theology and you know that's good to study but then you also need to engage things so it was yeah it was rough yeah and I remember you having a very difficult time with that um I wasn't always privy to the discussions which you and our good friend Justin would have because um, he was a pre-novice with you as well. He was. He's married now. I did hear that. I used that. to get text messages from him, uh, but they have died down. Uh, I think since... he just stopped sending them in general because I haven't gotten any either. Um, but yeah, no, I just remember you having a, you being a very central figure. I remember you and I had a fair degree of getting alongness, even though I was terribly annoyed. Probably still am, to be fair. Um, but yeah, no, I spent about a year there and I enjoyed what I was studying, um, which was theology, but mostly philosophy, if I remember correctly. 
I and... got uh, the short end of the stick on that philosophy journey because I didn't have too much uh, college coming into uh, the Salesians and I ended up coming in uh, to Seton Hall in the spring semester. And at that time, they didn't have enough professors to run philosophy one and logic at the same time. So people, I, I learned history of philosophy starting with Rene Descartes. <laughs> Which is the worst place to start. And I didn't start, I didn't take logic until my senior year of college. So I had taken metaphysics oh. and everything before I had taken logic. Oh, geez. So everything was like, that's so bass acting. Root up, yes. Oh, geez. So when we like, had hey, uh, hey. other people who were like trying to speak in syllogisms and test each other, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. I don't understand. <laughs> All right, kids, we're going to study calculus. And in three years, we're going to get to basic arithmetic. I gave up on math when the alphabet started to get involved. Yeah, no. As soon as letters got involved, I was done with math. I'm, I'm sorry. I like my A's and my B's and my C's, and I like my 1's, 2's, and 3's. I like them in separate categories. Thank you very much. Mm. So, at least I'm... So convinced. No, go ahead. I was going to say, at least I know uh, that we did have a good relationship in uh, the convent there uh, attached to a beautiful church. Um, oh, Our Lady yeah. of the Valley. Um, I know the current pastor there, Father Miguel, has uh, moved the tabernacle back to the center Thank and has started to take up the red carpet and reveal beautiful tile work. The, the, I mean, regardless of your religious affiliation, I think everybody can agree that carpet is ugly and should be destroyed in 90% of all circumstances. Um, that's why they make area rugs there we go thank you like you know you're have you're going to be having a kid in november the rugs end up just being the thing that absorbs the human fecal matter and various other things and then you just try and clean it desperately but if you have a rug that your kid really ruined just get rid of the rug there <laughs> we go you're good you don't have to live with the fact that this is the spot where fluids and all other kinds of things came out and so it's just it's very reassuring maybe i'm getting more finicky about these things i, I think we're that. we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because we have known that you were just a a lowly candidate and now you're revealing oh, yeah. that you have a child so oh, yes. there's there's a middle ground there that we've missed since you were supposed to be pope but and the, obviously so not and the, the middle ground definitely redeems the story. There's no need to be fearful of scandal. Um, I, yeah, no, I was a candidate with the Salesians for a year. I enjoyed my time there, enjoyed what I was studying. But the spirit of the community was not what I had expected, wanted, or felt that I could continue to operate within. Okay, so you were just there for one year. Yeah. So, it was about so you visited years. when I was a second year candidate, and you lived there when I was a pre-novice, and you were a first year candidate, and then you left. I remember we did get into some trouble um, for some shenanigans. There used to be things like games we would play with the blow dart, and you would <laughs> fall down at the dinner table oh, and just go completely limp. I believe yes. we had Nerf gun wars in the house. There was a lot of that ninja slapping as well. Oh, yes. Remember? You'd have yes. to, it was a silly game where you would only be allowed to hit the other person's hands, but you being from Boston and having numerous brothers learned quickly that while you may not have been able to win the game, you could have come out a winner if you just started hitting us in the face. And, I was uh, aiming for the hand. It was a secondary effect. <laughs> It was a mistake. So one, yes, yeah, so one thing philosophy has taught me: it wasn't my primary intent; it just happened. <laughs> it was an act, a secondary cause. Yes, or a secondary effect, rather. But yeah, no, we would get into all kinds of nonsense. Um, I think at this point, I started to realize—I I started to manifest what I did not at the point realize—that I'm much more introverted than I had imagined. Um, and I remember being overwhelmed and emotionally exhausted on those even on those once or twice a week evenings where we would invite kids from the neighborhood to play 
and like have like a gym evening with us in a nearby rec center. And I just remember being completely drained halfway through, not even to the end. Like Friday nights. Drained. Friday nights, that's what it was. I would be completely drained and just sit at the door with one of the cooperators. Um, and that, along with a couple of other things, because I'm very much of an old-fashioned kind of Catholic. I'm very grumpy about a lot of little things, which the little things add up and make meaning and are meaningful only if you understand them in a certain context. And I just found again that this was not where I was meant to be. And so after again a year, I decided or I made the decision to leave. I went back to Michigan. Um, had like a very bad period of about six months where I'd like to, I, I don't know, I don't want to self-diagnose, but it was definitely in a state which I imagine could be easily mistaken for depressed. Not because I necessarily was sad to have left, but the, the life change had been so, found, like, so fundamental and foundational, even though I'd only been there a year. And my It's very hard to break out of the regimen that you live yes. for an entire year. And then one day you're there and then the next day you're not. And there's a yeah. complete break and you're like, well, now what do I do? Yeah. And there's no hope of it ever picking up again. You're just sort of, you had found some degree of peace and happiness and comfort and regimen. And then it's gone. And, and then what did you but, do? Oh, geez, then I, well, one, I started working midnight for the CBS, which if you ever want to see the darker aspects of humanity, work at a drugstore in the middle of the night. Um. No, thank you. I have a father who's a police officer, so I've uh, oh. heard my fair share. Oh, my goodness, no. Oh, I mean, mm. well, that was one thing I started to do, made money, but was also then studying philosophy at the local Catholic seminary as a layman without actually being a seminarian, so I got my bachelor's degree in philosophy, while also subsequently working at two youth ministry organizations in the archdiocese um, which I greatly enjoyed but again I was always drained afterwards and I think learning those subtle things which your body your mind and your heart and all of those things working in concert with your soul try and tell you that maybe you're not supposed to be Maybe you're not supposed to be doing a specific avenue. Maybe you're not supposed to be pursuing something. You physically can't maintain the, See, the necessary engagement. Now, I had those things, but I ignored them. Because when I <laughs> entered, I made the deal with myself. I'm not leaving here until a superior tells me this is not for you. Because I said, oh, you can endure anything. Yeah. Right. And you can, you know, I gave it a full decade of my life, which at that time was a third of my life uh, with the Salesians. I said, I'm not leaving until the superiors tell me this is not for you. Cause I was just going to say, well, if it's difficult right now, it's going to get better. So I would just put my hand to the proverbial plow and just keep going. And that's what I did. I kept applying and they kept accepting me. So I just kept going. I said, I must be doing something right. And uh, the way that I'm feeling just must be, you know, abnormal at a certain point. I later found out I uh, do have a diagnosis of depression, but uh, mm. it just kept my head down, kept, uh, well, kept my head down to a certain extent, but at the same time, uh, just <laughs> going along with the regimen and going with the flow. Yeah. I mean, see, I was very much, maybe too much in the opposite vein. Um my wife has found this to be so that whenever I am dissatisfied with work, with whatever job I might be working with, it very quickly spills over into every other aspect of my life. And I immediately look for a change, um, which usually means that I have a desire to pick up and move every once in a while, um, which luckily... I don't, I don't really follow those instincts anymore, but I'm very much, if I do not feel at peace about this, something's wrong and mm. it's got to change or I'm going to change. And 
and you're not going to like the change. <laughs> yeah, no, because that's the thing, though. Is that, like as soon as you do change, there's a fallout. There's like an emotional fallout because I don't know why, or I don't know necessarily how to mitigate it, or if there is a mitigating. But I found that after I had left the Salesians, even though I was only there for one year, um, there was like an emotional fallout for like a year or two, not more. And, uh, I mean, maybe I was coming out of it when I finished my bachelor's, but that was only because I decided at that point that I wanted to try religious life again. But now I was going to do a more traditional order. The, the Dominican we had spoken about earlier, a very old order founded about the year 1100 um, under Holy Father Dominic um, to fight the Albigensian heresy in southern France. The Cathar. Um, so for all those who don't know what the Albigensian heresy is, do you want to elaborate since you've introduced it? Oh, yeah, very good. Yeah. So the Albigensian heresy was, um, to throw out another buzzword, it was a, ma a version of Manichaeism, which is this sort of dualist idea that material stuff is bad. It is either bad by accident or human effect or in the more extreme form forms, it's bad because an evil deity made material stuff. But everything that's spiritual is good because the good deity made all the spiritual stuff. And so human beings are this weird kind of juxtaposition, this weird straddling both sides because we're made of material stuff and we're spiritual. And so this Manichaeism, Albigensian thing that eventually popped up in Southern France was this idea that, listen, your body's evil. Don't listen to it. Don't even feed it if you don't have to. Like, don't have kids. Like, just destroy your body. It's just an ugly thing that needs to be ultimately suppressed and warped and conformed and contorted to whatever your soul desires for it to be. Um, it was very critical of a lot of the things going on in Southern France at that time, both, both civil and religious. Um, and the monks who were attempting to fight against it tried to fight against it doing very lavish processions, um, as Catholics are wont to do, but that just sort of showed off how worldly they seemed in comparison to the Albigensians. And so the Dominicans come around and they're fasting just as hard as the Albigensians are, and they're praying just as firmly as they are. And so it's a very interesting historical circumstance. Um, as a side thing, their preaching didn't necessarily work because the king of France eventually called a crusade to completely stomp out the Albigensian heresy. And that's where actually we get the, get the quote to the a knight said, kill them all, let God sort them out. I believe because the they Marines were... use that to this day. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot confirm that. My family didn't, has not fared well in military service being on the losing side of two world wars. We came over in 1950, so we've never been great with military service. For those of you who don't know, he's German. <laughs> yes, we were. We didn't wait for a third. We didn't wait for the hat trick. We just, we just decided, you know what? We're just going to go to America. Um, sold everything that we had. But so then, uh, um, after that, you joined the Dominicans, and yes, yeah. um, what happened there? Yeah, no, I had a great time. I was extremely happy. Much more happy than I had been as with the, the Salesians, which is weird because I thought I was very happy with the Salesians. Um, but now I was happy not just because I was with, with people that were interested in the same things as me, living in a community that was praying, but now it was like firmly spiritual, almost monastic setup where there was a degree of asceticism and prayer and quiet meditation, study. It was all these things that I wanted in my heart. Um, yep. And Except so, for the glaring oversight that uh, the Dominicans are friars and not monks. I know, right? But that's part of their history as well. I mean, as a novice, you remember, you were a novice. It's the closest you'll ever come to a monastic life without being a monk. Um, communication with the outside world is limited. Um, not because the outside world is bad, but it distracts. It doesn't allow you to think as much. It doesn't allow you to discern the question of 
much. I don't, I don't necessarily know your experience in the bishop, but my time, which was not quite a year, um, because after like nine months, I eventually turned out as well, despite loving every single inch of it, every single day of it, I still did not have the necessary confidence and con my conscience would not have permitted me to continue on. Not because anything was wrong, but I just did not have this, the confidence that this was the direction that I was supposed to go in, which is annoyingly imprecise. It's not nearly as concrete as I would have liked it. And, and in still your, wish it was more concrete. <laughs> I was going to say, even uh, with your uh, with your academic background, you should know by now that God does not speak to you in absolutes and concreteness. He guides your heart and allows you to make the decisions. Which is rather annoying. I don't really like this whole free will thing that God seems to have given us. Even though that's a rather central part of our being. But it's just I've it seems like whenever a, a change comes in my life, very infrequently am I making that change with confidence. I'm usually making it in, not necessarily in reaction to something, um, but there's certainly a, a, need, a, a perceived need that something needs to change. Mm. And I don't necessarily know why or how or to what end it's going to go, but I had the sense that despite being extraordinarily happy, um, it was not where I was meant to be. And so after nine months, I, I packed up my things and I left. And then I went to Franciscan University of Steubenville, where I got a master's degree in theology in what's known as their research intensive track. Because um, they're trying to put together a PhD from what I hear. And so as part of that, they're making like a super master's degree. At least they did. I don't know what the state of it is now, but they were making a research master's um, where you had to write a thesis and I don't know, I enjoyed my time to a certain degree there. Um, by that point, I had sort of become disillusioned with institutions and organizations as if they were going to make me happy. Mm. Um, and so I just sort of wanted to survive. Um, but I eventually along with a friend of mine by the name of Nicholas Belch. He's a wonderful man. I'd love to, I'd love to, I'd love it if you had a chance to meet him, Adam. But, um, <clears throat> we ended up convincing the university to send us to Austria for a semester because the university of Franciscan, Franciscan University of Steubenville has a campus that they own in Austria, which is an old Carthusian monastery. Um, the monks are not there anymore. I think one of the Austrian emperors kicked them out because they didn't, quote-unquote, do anything of value, um, which is absurd. But, um, Very short-sighted of the emperor. Well, yes, unfortunately, that's been a thing that Habsburg struggled with a lot. But they eventually sent us there along with a number of other graduate students and even provided us with graduate courses. And it was while I was there, I actually met uh, my would-be wife. She was a undergrad student studying there in English. Um, I met her there and we hit it off, but we didn't start dating until we came back to America because we didn't want to ruin our time in Austria. He um, didn't want to be in that weird situation where you're essentially like stuck on an island with somebody and that's the only reason why you like them. And then as soon as you go home, it's like, oh wait, I don't actually like you. That was sort of what it was on that little island of, of English speakers in Austria, surrounded by a sea of German speakers. Um, we didn't want to, we didn't want that to be the reason why. And, but then as soon as I came back to America, I was gung-ho on this idea of getting married, which was not necessarily something I ever really anticipated wanting. So you didn't ever have to go through the track of dating apps and trying to find somebody in the way of the 21st century. Oh, goodness, no. I was, I was, I was spared of that. You lucky, um, lucky <laughs> bastard. 
I was I was somehow spared of that. Um, yeah, no, I had no interest when I went to Austria. I had no intention on dating or finding anybody either. So she just sort of popped up out of nowhere. So to jump, a, was funny to jump ahead just a wee bit. When yeah. you were in Austria, I was in Jerusalem. Right. Oh, that's right. Those things linked up. That's why I believe you had sent me a Facebook message. That's right. And said, hey, I have some free time. I'd like to come to Jerusalem for Holy Week. Is there any way that you can arrange uh, for lodging? So I went to the director and asked and I said, I had a friend who was coming to Jerusalem and he's looking for a place to stay. Can he stay here? And he said, yes, he just has to make a contribution of some sort. I said, okay, no problem. I'm sure he'll be happy to. And you're, I don't know what you paid, but you paid enough to be able to stay there. Uh, and oh, one of the little places that only had a back door entrance, you had to walk all the way around to the back of the monastery to get into. And oh, you goodness. joined us for was in a Holy Week. Yes, you were in a dungeon. Well, yeah, it was like under the, it was under the chapel. But like you said, you had to walk around the whole place to the only entrance was this door that had to be like unlocked like a like what are those like safety locks and oh goodness we yeah, easily could have locked you inside there forever nobody would ever find you nobody would have known i mean oh my goodness it was just a glorious time um yeah i flew in we uh, it was interesting because a group of us actually went to jerusalem that that week um, but I just, because I was sick of all these, like mostly undergrads, because once you get older, you get tired of undergrads, you just get tired of younger people to a certain degree. And so there was like a whole gaggle of them. And I informed them that I want nothing to do with them. Do not talk to me. I will not help you find your way around. Because they you don't know yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they had grown to depend on me because I was grown up and I had some experience in Europe prior to that. And so they were sort of dependent on me to uh, find their way around in foreign places. And so I just started off and told them, I'm not interested. I am busy. I'm going to be doing stuff. And uh, it was just a really good time. So after you uh, ditched your underclassmen, uh, you joined me at the monastery. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Our Lady of Sion Monastery, the Salesian mm -hmm. Radisbon. Yeah. And then um, we spent most of Holy Week together. So you showed up on Holy Thursday morning, mm -hmm. I believe. Or you might have been yeah. in before that, but you were at the monastery Thursday through Monday, I believe. I remember when I landed in Tel Aviv. Um, after being frisked, especially furiously, because they saw a, a gaggle of single men, mostly bearded, flying into Jerusalem only for like a weekend. And they were like, this looks weird. And so we all got especially, I, I even got pulled off to the side and had like my shoes tested. That's because you're German. That's because I'm German. And that was the thing. I had my German passport and my American passport. They got really nervous about it. Um, but it was just, I mean, I remember when I landed in Tel Aviv, um, I walked out and it just smelled like a garden. And that was just sort of a very good um, smell-based memory that really is implanted in my mind. Um, it was a very busy place. I remember, what was the name of those, essentially taxi cabs? Like take you from the airport to the the to shuttle the service we just referred to it as. I don't remember it what it was called, but uh, I know what you're talking about. because I remember I I know that it cost around. sixty shekels to go from mm -hmm. from the airport to downtown Jerusalem. That's what it was. Yes, I think I paid sixty shekels, and the idea of switching money over again was very strange because I wasn't even changing over from dollars into shekels. I was changing from euros into shekels which is a whole other can of worms. It's a decent exchange rate, though. It was very good. What was it, like four shekels to a dollar, if not more? Mm -hmm. It was very good. Um, but yeah, no, we got there. 
or I got there to, to the monastery, had a wonderful time. Um, you set me up in that in the dungeon. Um, by that point, I was still smoking. Um, I was smoking cigarettes. Um, and it was just a very interesting experience because I remember just sitting there at the back of a monastery, looking up at this massive sky rise of apartments in Jerusalem. And it was just a very surreal moment. And I mean, the next couple of days, you took me all over. Visited all the holy sites. Um, all I remember sites. Uh, going to Calvary, you were just, your, your, if your jaw could have hit the floor, it would have. <laughs> I remember you going into the anointing stone was your first stop. You oh, getting yeah. on your knees and reverencing the, uh, the anointing stone and then uh, walking you around there, going first up to Calvary and having you stick oh, your yeah. arm into the hole where the cross had been placed. Oh, yeah. And if and you're then, not familiar, the anointing stone is the place that is known as um, the place where Christ's body after the crucifixion after he had died. Um, the Mary and the other women anointed his body with holy oil. And it's this slab of rock as soon as you enter in, cover it like over it as a bunch of lamps. And women have this practice of pouring oil onto the stone and then taking their hair and rubbing the oil into the stone, very much like the, I believe it was the adulterous woman who, who anointed Christ's feet. And it was incredibly tangible. Because like you mentioned, there's that spot that you can, like it goes up to like mid arm, like mid bicep, if not a little bit further where um, they have preserved the hole, the slot that Christ's cross was slid into position on the spot that we understand to be Calvary. And it's just incredibly surreal. And it's just, and then on top of that, you then took me over to the, to the, to, oh, what's the word? The edicule. There we go, the edicule, where they keep the, the slab of stone, that, or rather that was built around Christ's tomb. So, um, Interesting fact about that. There's uh, a few different Christian denominations uh, that are inside of the Church of the Holy mm. Sepulchre. Among them are the Romans, the uh, Greek Orthodox, and the Ethiopian Orthodox. And inside mm -hmm. the Edicule, particularly of the Greek Orthodox who uh, handle the uh, the inside portion of the tomb, but on the back side of it, there's a little window that's guarded by an Ethiopian uh, Orthodox monk, and you can look into the tomb from that uh, area. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's just, it's one of those things where if you studied it from just like an anthropological kind of sociological perspective, like it's the weirdest thing of like, human like like groups of humans and these ethnic cultural and sociological identities all of them barely holding it together because every once in a while you hear about fights breaking out in the church of the holy sepulcher and that's not entirely surprising once you've been there because there's parts of it that i wasn't that i simply wasn't allowed in because i wasn't the right kind of person like there was the greek orthodox but yes, very good. I wasn't the right type of Christian. And so, I mean, Roman Catholic, Latin, under the Pope, and I wasn't allowed into certain Greek parts of the church um, because the guards looking at me knew I wasn't Greek. And so I just simply wasn't allowed, right? And there was this whole section, I think, for the Armenians. Mm -hmm. who, That's true. And you just, and there were certain back areas that I just wasn't allowed to enter into because I clearly wasn't Armenian, but there's this weird sense of corporate ownership. And I remember we went there and I just wanted to stay there all day. Um, but because I knew that you wanted to show me a bunch of other things and I did want to see the rest of Jerusalem. Um, we went out wandering. We went on the, across the Kitterin Valley. For any of you people aware of the Bible, you may have heard of the Kitterin Valley. Um, we went to Dominus Flevit. 
the Garden of Gethsemane as well. At Domino's Flavit, that's where I, uh, not when you were there, but uh, I was given a tip by another American Franciscan who was there that there was going to be a uh, U.S. government official visiting uh, who was Catholic and an alumnus of uh, Seton Hall. And I got to meet uh, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito uh, in the really? garden there. Mm -hmm. We had mass together. It was a wonderful experience. And at, I was invited to dinner afterwards where uh, the custos of the Holy Land, who is now the current patriarch of Jerusalem, served me uh, dinner. <laughs> oh, goodness. I mean, we could delve into that whole trip. It could be its whole own episode, but because not because we did a lot necessarily, but we did do a lot. Um, but because there's so much history and so many things like a custos and the latin patriarch is supposed yeah. to be the greek patriarch of the place that, that would have to be a whole different podcast of right? um, ecclesiology oh <laughs> but so. i just remember we had like an astounding time and some of it i was i remember i just mentioned i don't think i remember all of it um but we ended up going on easter vigil to the abbey to the monastery of the of the Dormition, hmm. which is a place that Latin Catholics typically associate with being the place where Mary, the mother of God, um, ascended into heaven. Um, or assumed. was it just where she fell asleep? Assumed. Oh, goodness, assumed. Don't tell my students I made that. Assumed into heaven. Ascended. Christ ascended. Called the Dormitio because the Eastern Catholics were refer to it as the great sleep whereas the catholics refer to it as the assumption and the yes. assumption is uh we assume that she went body and soul up not calling it a death and the eastern catholics call it the dormitio for the great sleep which we can mm -hmm. assume is death but without saying that it's death yes and there's um, there's the thing about theology is that you learn that there's a lot of ambiguity and a lot of other positions which one could take. Um, because but it's some, not really worth it. No, but some people will take it. <laughs> some people will die on the smallest of angels and consider it a martyrdom. But, <laughs> but we went to the Abbey of the Dormition, run by a group of German Benedictine monks. It was my favorite. I went there every uh, Sunday for Sunday Mass. I don't speak yeah. any German. Mass was always conducted in German, but it, the liturgy was just so beautiful. I was like, this, mm -hmm. is, this is my Sunday spot. There we go. I mean, that's, a, that's something to be said for the power, especially for, I mean, just the power of ritual and like well-done ritual and well-done expression and music. And by like, ritual, we're talking about the good old Catholic aerobics of up, down, up, down, knee, up, down. <laughs> You got to face certain ways and cross yourself at certain times, move here and there. And like you said, sit down, up, down, up, down, left, left, right, A, B, start. And then you, you unlock something. And in this case, it's the grace of God. But we went there and it was just, like I said, like we said, it was all in German. And the abbot at that time was an Irishman. Yes. He was an Irish. So I had never heard. German spoken in an Irish accent, which was the weirdest thing in the world. I can't even replicate it. Like if you've ever learned, like if you ever learned German, just try and like you've heard Americanized German, but try and figure out Irish German. It's just the strangest thing in the world, but I loved it just because it was so strange. Um, I still have a video of, of the bells ringing at the moment that we all came out because Christ had risen. Christ was risen from the dead. So for those of you who don't know, uh, celebrating the Easter Vigil for the Germans, they're so precise that uh, the Easter Vigil started at 3 a.m. on Sunday and went for three hours till 6 a.m. And when you left the church, the sun was rising over <laughs> the hills of Jerusalem. And... I'm pretty sure we slept until the mid-afternoon at that point because yes. we had been up from Good Friday, all of Holy Saturday, going into Easter Sunday. We really didn't sleep 
uh, too much. Yeah, um, no. Because after the Holy Thursday celebration for the Mass for the Institution of the Priesthood in the Eucharist, mm-hmm. um, Mass of the Last Supper, uh, we ended up partying a little bit uh, too hard with some of our, <laughs> my Polish brothers, uh, with the Salesians, where I am a big fan of Jameson Irish whiskey. And the Polish there um, studied for a year in Ireland. So they were also very familiar and loved the Irish whiskey. So I would always take money that I had received from home. I would take the money and go and buy the whiskey. And they would take <laughs> they would receive from home and they would go to the Russian market and buy uh, Russian sausages and other types of things that they couldn't get uh, from mm-hmm. their home. And we would have like uh, joined uh, parties. Um, so it was a, a decent trip um, in being able to, to have these moments with people from all over the world mm-hmm. coming, studying for a singular purpose. And to mm-hmm. have these moments where you'd have Ethiopians, Polish, Italians, Americans, uh, Germans coming together and celebrating uh, the mass of the institution of the priesthood in the Eucharist, where we may have imbibed too much and overslept going to Good Friday <laughs> morning prayer in Stations of the Cross on the Via Crucis. When I was supposed to be the cross bearer uh, for this mm-hmm. thing, we had to rush to take a taxi to meet That's everybody. Right. I remember that. Uh, we yeah. got there just in time and we avoided the suspicion of the superiors that we were late. Um, but I got to say at the time I used to wear a cassock and mm-hmm. wearing the cassock saved my life. Cause I was wearing like a pair of gym shorts. And I think I threw on a pair of black uh, boots and I just went and I was pounding <laughs> on Eric's uh, door saying, wake up, we gotta go. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, the Via Crucis is, is the Latin for the way of the cross. And you may have seen them in churches. If you've ever been to a Catholic church, um, these nice little, those quaint little pictures on the wall. But in Jerusalem proper, there are points throughout the city marked that have been traditionally associated with where those events actually happen. And so we would wander, and so we would go from spot to spot in the whole, like, old city. Like, we'd start here, where traditionally it was understood this is where Pilate's, this is where the Praetorium was. And then we'd walk from there, and then this is where he fell, and this is where he met his mother. And, and so it would be this all over the city thing. And so poor, so poor Adam, Brother Adam at that point, is, is, is the one carrying the cross throughout the city while we all say mournfully the stations of the cross on good friday while potentially being hung over <laughs> well i don't want to say that <laughs> <laughs> so that was a good middle east meetup that we had um, oh i loved it i loved it and then since then um what have you been up to because we spoiler alert know that you got married and had children yeah yeah i got married um as a we're coming up on four years this August. Uh, married that nice girl that I met in Austria. She wasn't Austrian. She's an American who was studying there again. Um, after nine months of dating, we got engaged for four months and then got married on the Feast of Our Lady of Snow. Oh, August 5th. Also, yes. the celebration of the founding of the Salesian Sisters. Oh, really? I didn't know that. And do you know that Our Lady of Snows is also the feast of one of the major basilicas in Rome? Yes, the feast of St. Mary Major, where, where my future wife and I had a very good time visiting when we had the chance to go to Rome when we were in the Austria campus. Um, it was a very Catholic day because as soon as we got engaged, before we called any family members, we called the church where we wanted to get married and then got that day squared away. And according to Catholic law or Catholic practice, it's expected that you are engaged for six months before you get married. Um, And I asked my pastor for dispensation and he gave dispensation that we didn't have to wait the six months. We just got married after four months, maybe four and a half. 
I'm glad you didn't say law because I would say that that's not true at all. All you need yes. for marriage is consent of the parties and being baptized uh, Catholics. That's all that you. That's all that you need for the sacrament in order to occur. But like and, I said, the, the practice and the preference is that you should have six months of engagement. The norm, as they say. The, there we go. The norm. That's always a good technical legal phrase. But my pastor was very nice and gave us dispensation, so we got married fairly quickly because um, we had no, we didn't want to waste any time. I had discovered something that uh, a course in life that I felt that I had that I felt I wanted to do, felt comfortable doing, and felt at peace about doing it, which was very interesting. It's not necessarily something that I was ever comfortable with. Was was the idea of peace, being at peace with something? Resignation is different than peace. I think a lot of people confuse those two. Mm. Resigning yourself to something is different than being at peace with something. Um, and so we got engaged, and then I think a year and a month later, our firstborn came, um, Alistair. We named him something absurdly authorial. I sound like an author. Um, and then I think... I feel like you pigeonholed the kid. Now he's going to have to do that. Either that or either that or monk. I've mm -hmm. already informed him that he has like five monasteries he can pick from. Um, he's not even three, so he doesn't even understand what I'm saying, really. But he understands that his father wants him to become a monk, and if he doesn't, his father's gonna be deeply disappointed, and it'll be a barrier to my loving. And now that's recorded forever. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> I've said much worse things, um, <laughs> but it was interesting because after Alistair was born, my wife and I. Uh, went to Europe because I wanted to study um, theology further to go on for what's called a research master's with the idea of studying for a PhD in theology at the Catholic University of Louvain, of Leuven, as, they, as the Flemish say, in Belgium, in Flanders specifically. Um, but a little thing happened. I don't know if you guys heard of it. The strangest thing happened at, um, what was it, last March? Um, and COVID shut everything down and so all of the funding opportunities went away all the classes shut down everything shut down and so my wife and i were just miserable they were going to do another lockdown and we survived one and by that point we were pregnant with our second and my wife and i i just made the call really i mean my wife was just sort of surviving the best that she could being incredibly pregnant with a very irritable one-year-old one and a half year old, maybe two year old by that point. No, not two year old yet, but a very irritable boy. And I just looked for a job teaching Catholic theology at a high school. And I found one here in Austin and I absolutely love it. Um, did they pay for you to relocate from Belgium to Austin? They did not, they did not. Um, though it's a Catholic high school. They don't have I know, I'm just asking. No, no. Because good, good Catholic practice would be, or you would think, of being paying a living wage to a family and not necessarily a salary of what you would typically pay a teacher because, you know, they're Catholic. And one would think that being Catholic and following the church teaching, and I assume that they are an accredited actual Catholic high school, that they would follow, yeah. follow the teaching of the church and paying a living wage. But no. I'm not going to stand no. on a soapbox at this time. Well, the thing is, the lucky thing about that is, is that this is the United States where Catholicism has been annoyingly handicapped by its desperate desire to be liked by the rest of America. We are the largest denomination in the United States, despite numbers, but we are wildly outnumbered by Protestantism in the United States, which has a very different understanding of how the church and state are supposed to work together than traditionally has happened, which means that the way that we actualize ourselves in the United States is not necessary. I'm not blaming the Protestants necessarily. It's just a very different kind of setup. And we did not get compensation for travel, but they have been very generous um, with me, very patient with me. Because this, uh, that was my first year teaching. And they've, they've provided me with a living wage, a very nice livable wage. But then again, given how expensive houses are here in Austin, I still have no no dream of ever buying a house anytime soon, especially once Elon Musk moves in here and builds a Tesla. Uh, what is it like a Tesla? SpaceX. 
the SpaceX here. I mean, my goodness, how far away is that? Apple's here. Dell is building another hospital. Like the whole area is booming. Most of Hollywood is relocating to Austin because of uh, Joe Rogan moving there. Yeah, Joe Rogan's here. Hot dang. And he's even annoyed by, by Californians moving out, hmm. which is really funny. Um, there's a saying out here, don't California, don't California my Texas. Yeah, I've heard um, that. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting situation. But I think it's similar because a lot of people on your side of the country are moving down to Florida. Yes, some of them, a good number of them. I have some family that's down in southwest Florida myself. Well, I mean, enough of them are moving that New York lost a congressional seat. New Jersey lost a congressional seat. Did Massachusetts lose one? No, they retained it. Oh, they had, they had just enough. <laughs> but, I mean, everybody's moving. Everybody's moving to different places in the world. And I picked a great place to move to. Just a terrible place if you want to buy a house. But yeah. I don't know. My wife and I are thinking long-term now. We have two kids. A third is on the way. Um, our second, Charles, was actually born in, in Belgium. Um, he doesn't get Belgian citizenship because I'm not a Belgian citizen. Um, so but they don't, they don't have a, a sanguine uh, birthright citizenship then. Yeah, you need to you need a bit you need to be a Belgian in order to pass on Belgian citizenship in America. I think we're like one of the few countries that does that. Says, hey, you're here, you get citizenship. Here you go. <laughs> I might be wrong, but um, a lot of Europe doesn't do that. But Europe is also very meddled with their um, borders and free travel, so I can understand why. Whereas the U.S. Yeah. is kind of open and saying, "Okay, you're born yeah. here, yeah, you get citizenship, you get it." But there's also, I think, a very real sense of, I mean, in the United States, to be an American, all you need to do is submit to the authority of the Constitution and the U.S. government. And That's what makes there. you a and well, not even necessarily. Like somebody can move here, and all he needs to do is submit to this constitution, swear allegiance, and then he's in. Um, and then you're considered an American 110 percent because there's not necessarily an ethnic identity or an ethnic or an ethnicity associated with the United States explicitly. True. I mean, I can legally become a Belgian. I'm not actually Belgian. That's the understanding. Like I can legally become French but I'm not actually French. And they understand, and they would understand. Like, okay, you are a French citizen. You're not actually French. Because there's attached to that an ethnic identity, which, I mean, you can see it in Catholic social teaching, arguably. Um, at least with Thomas Aquinas, the idea was that you were not to be considered a member or a part of a country for the next two generations. Because if you move there, like if I moved, like when I moved over to Belgium, I was an American in Belgium. Doesn't matter how much I wanted to be Belgian or Flemish, um, I was an American. And my kid would have been a lot like me, and his kid maybe would have been a little bit more Belgian. And so for them, there's still a lot of ethnicity and culture attached to it. In America, it's just about mission. And we've gotten really far afield, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> and we have so but I do, I uh, we have to wrap up um because we've Very been good. talking for about an hour and a half um okay. and you know no complaints here great conversation i'd love to have you back anytime um Please. i thank you for reaching out and offering your services for uh uh being interviewed slash guest host spot so yeah i mean my wife got tired of hearing me so i need to find somebody who would be willing to hear me well, I mean, that I've always wanted to do some sort of podcast because I look at this as being sort of like a, an audio journal of what's going on, um, mm. not just in my life, but in the life of uh, people around me and having uh, a soundboard with which to throw out um, my, my verbal and mental thoughts. So to, yeah. to have uh, that sort of a platform and using social media to just put things out there, uh, I think is... Mm -hmm. uh, it's a healthy way. I used to journal, but uh, I, I've not kept up with journaling. And now this forces me to re release something every Friday. Yeah. I mean, I think the, I think it, I'm very interested to see what the history channel would look like in a couple of generations. 
they won't be just have, hiring some voice actor to read the letters and journals of their ancestors. They'll just be playing clips like this. Yes. And so rather than cheesy voice actors, it'll just be us being cheesy people. I mean, I so, feel like it's uh, what the blogs were in the early 2000s and 2010s never oh, has yeah. a single person said so much to so few. <laughs> said so much about so little to so few. Oh, well. Well, Eric, thank you very much for uh, joining me on my third episode for the New Balances podcast. Uh, We hope to have you back at some point and uh, it's been fun. Have a good night. Awesome. Thank you too, Adam. All right.